Hey everybody, welcome to the Game Changer Lacrosse Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Yavoli. The Game Changer Lacrosse Podcast is about talking to people who have dedicated their life to the game of lacrosse and learning about who they are, how they got to where they are today, and what they do to improve themselves and their teams. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at GC Sports, and if you're a coach or a parent, check out Game Changer Team Manager in the App Store. You can ditch the emails and spreadsheets. The free Game Changer Team Manager app streamlines communication, scheduling, and live scoring into one easy-to-use app. Game Changer Team Manager is 100% free for your entire team. Learn more at gc.com forward slash team manager or search for Game Changer Team Manager in the App Store. Today in the show, we have the head coach of the chaos in the Premier Lacrosse League, Andy Towers. Coach Towers was a graduate of Brown University where he was a three-time All-American in two different positions, once as an attackman and twice as a midfielder. He still holds the record for goals in a single season and career goals. After college, he started his coaching career as an assistant at Brown before moving on to Yale and then Fairfield. He was the head coach at Hartford College for one year before taking the assistant position at Dartmouth. He then became the head coach at Dartmouth in 2009. He's now the head coach of the Chaos Lacrosse Club. Coach Towers and I got a chance to talk about a lot of things like having a competitive spirit, the importance of rest and recovery, appreciating opportunities, what his experience has been like in the PLL so far, and much more. Here's my interview with Coach Towers. Coach Towers, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. Pleasure to be on. Appreciate you having me. I'm excited to get to talk, so let's get started like I always do. How'd you get started playing lacrosse? Uh, well, my, I grew up in New Canaan, Connecticut, and my father actually grew up in Manhasset, Long Island. Hmm. And when we moved to Connecticut, he helped start the New Canaan Youth Lacrosse Association. Hmm. And so I was fortunate to be able to grow up in a town where there was the ability to play organized youth lacrosse from literally third grade on. And that's mm. kind of when we started. And, and, and my class, class of 1987, was the first class to actually go all the way through youth lacrosse from third through eighth grade mm. before we hit high school. Wow. So uh, did you, were you born in New Canaan or did you move from Manhasset to New Canaan? No, my dad grew up in Manhasset. My mom grew up in Nebraska. Okay. My dad was in the Marine Corps. My mom was teaching in L.A. My dad got stationed out in L.A. and really Newport Beach to be specific. And they went out there. Uh, they had my brother out there, Tom, who's three and a half years older than me. Mm-hmm. And then my dad got a job working back in New York. They moved back gotcha. um, to Connecticut. And so I was actually born the day after they moved back to Connecticut. Or oh, wow. to Connecticut in 19, 1968. Huh. So packing a lot of things right into that move uh, the day you get there. That's, <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's um, exactly right. So did uh, did your dad play lacrosse in college at all? He did. He went to Princeton, was class in 1959 there. Okay. Um, played with Hall of Famer Cookie Krongard. Right. Um, and my uncle John was three years behind him, class of '62. And mm-hmm. ironically, my brother and I both ended up going to Brown. Yeah. But um, my uncle and my dad both went to Princeton. Gotcha. And so, 
even before the the youth league started in New Canaan, did you have a stick in your hand? I did. I, I, I remember having a stick forever. Right. You know, the sticks I remember though were, you know, what the the Indians play with and or right. what they, you know, used to play with, I guess, you know, the old school wood with the you know, the leather sidewall which yep. were considered girls girl sticks for a while until mm-hmm. they've all gone plastic now and um but I remember having those sticks in my garage forever. Right, right. Yeah, it's uh I feel if you ever grow up, if you're a kid that grows up with a dad who played lacrosse, my, like you know, just like my dad, I, I'm the same way. I remember having a stick from day one. My earliest memory is being you're over from my Long grandma. Island, right? Yeah, I'm from Long Island. My dad played lacrosse in North Carolina. Anthony's? I did. Yeah. And, and your dad went to UNC. My dad played. Uh, well, he only played one year at UNC, but he was at North Carolina for two years. Um, what year? What year was he at UNC when he played? Seventy-eight. Okay, so he yeah. was he was just before those guys that won in what was that in eighty one? Yeah, I think eighty one was the first year. But Tom actually, Pierce and those guys, Tom yeah. Pierce and yeah, it's actually uh, <laughs> actually it's a funny story. A lot of the guys, um, a lot of like the All Americans or the captains for North Carolina were Levittown Memorial guys, which was where my dad went to high school, and my dad I think is the first one. Who went to North Carolina? So, like, started this wow. trend of lacrosse players going to North Carolina, which led to uh, the national championship uh, national championship team in '81. So, but, did your dad did your dad play high school lacrosse with Jeff Goldberg and and Steve Byrne and those guys? Uh, S- Steve Byrne sounds familiar. Goldberg, I, I don't know. Um, he played. Uh, do you know? Uh, so you know the names that I remember from that from that time are you know Tom Federico, Doug Hall, um, Jerry yeah. Hall. Uh, yeah, legendary, legendary guy. Right. Yeah. yeah. Th- those are all the guys. Um, you know, all the UNC alumni that that I basically grew up with. Um, like those Got are the it. first guys that I looked up to. Um, but yeah, same thing. Same thing. Like you said, he, uh, you know, he just gave me a lacrosse stick. It's something that I carried around my whole life. And then my my grandfather was the athletic director, not the athletic director, the the equipment manager at Nassau Community College. And so his garage was just like wall to wall um, early plastic sticks. And then those old Native American, um, you know, with the ladder sidewalls, just tons of those things. (laughs) Those are the things that I remember as well. Yeah. That very so very similar very similar deal you that's exactly. those guys so your dad was probably playing you know at the time when i still remember that poster of i think it was john hoss covering jeff cook when it was hopkins carolina it was probably. a legendary yeah. lacrosse poster yeah. right absolutely absolutely um so let's uh so what other sports were you playing at, at this at this time um when i was a little kid i was playing football mm-hmm uh, basketball, baseball, and lacrosse. And then in the summers, I'd play everything and, you know, a little tennis. My dad played golf. He would take us out every once in a while. But um, to be honest with you, it was football in the fall and it was basketball in the winter and it was lacrosse in the spring with baseball. Right, right. And so do you feel like those those games, um, those other sports help contribute to your lacrosse game at all? Uh, no question. I, I think what it did more so than anything else was cultivate competitive spirit in me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fortunate to have a brother that was, you know, three and a half years older than me. That was, you know, also a, a good athlete and hyper competitive and was into all sports, all games, 
And so everything was a competition from day one. Right. And I think playing all those other sports further enhanced an appreciation for uh, competing and, you know, ultimately learning how to handle losing because I lost a lot more than I won. (laughs) Right. But eventually, uh, you know, uh, uh, eventually losing makes you tougher and it helps you win to prelude to winning, I think. And so uh, there's no question that all of those other sports helped me right. become a successful lacrosse player. For sure. Right. Right. So, so I assume when you talk to kids today or parents, you're recommending that they're multi-sport athletes. Absolutely. You know, yeah. I think that just beyond that, you know, when I was coaching college lacrosse and your, you know, your success in recruiting really, you know, is the, is the foundation for you providing a quality of life for your, your family. Right. You know, if you're not accurate in recruiting, you're not going to coach that long. And, and so when you're looking at recruits, you know, you really want hyper-competitive athletes more mm-hmm. than you want lacrosse players. And I think nothing documents that more than playing, you know, two or three sports. And I think right. just from a development standpoint, you know, to do the same thing over and over and over again all year long, they say is the number one indicator of injury. So, right. um, you know, factoring that in, factoring what you get out of playing the other sports, you know, what your respective roles are on those teams. That's another critical piece of the puzzle. You may be, you know, a great football player and a, and a good basketball player and an inexperienced, not so good lacrosse player. Mm-hmm. And so having an appreciation for those different, you know, roles is right. just going to help you be a better teammate and a better leader, I think, across the board. Right, absolutely. Yeah, the uh, the, the role thing, I think, is dead on. It's like you got to learn how to be at, you know, a different position in each sport and appreciate what that means. Um, I think it ends up making you a better leader um, for the sport that you end up choosing to play in the end. Um, for sure. Yeah, there, there's actually an interesting, uh, there's an interesting article that just came out in Sports Illustrated. Maybe you saw it. It's about, uh, it's about basketball players um, and like the rise in injury for young players because they're specializing at such a young age. Um, you know what I did? I did see that article. Right. And it's, it's, I've, I've read articles similar to that in, mm-hmm. in the past as it relates, you know, to soccer, to hockey and some of these sports that are year round. And, you right. know, part of, part of uh, the challenge for people that are coaching today and, and make their living in these sports is trying to find that perfect balance of, you know, having kids, keep that stick in their hand, but also making sure that they're not burning out. You know, right. it's a, it's, it's a very, very real dilemma, right. I, I would say. And, and one that's affected other sports. And if we're not too careful, it can affect lacrosse as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think the, the key thing to keep in mind for anybody who's listening is, is, you know, I think it's, I think you're ultimately going to end up being better if you step away from the sport for, for a few months. Right. I mean, you don't got to be playing every day. I agree with you a hundred percent. I get the I get the question a lot, uh, you know, from from parents whose kids are in my respective programs, and I say, you know, outside of just not having the body wear down and, and getting sick of it, mm-hmm. you know, you want the biggest favor you can do kids in any sport is to keep the dynamic of them really excited to go to practice alive as much as possible. Right. The kids are saying that they don't want to go to practice and they're not looking. I'm talking about consistently every once in a while, a kid's like, I don't feel like practicing today. Right, right. You know, but if <laughs> right. kids are, if kids are repeatedly being like, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Mm-hmm. 
and it's something that they've enjoyed in their lives, you know, that's a red flag that, that you know, they need to take a step back. I, I right. think to really start to do a disservice by doing too much. You know, you, right. you want them to be dying to play. That's, right. I think, the best favorite because if they're dying to play, they're going to work hard. If they work hard, they're going to improve, right. you know, quickly enough. A hundred percent. Yeah, they need to learn to, um, you know, they need to learn to rest and recover, basically. Yep. Um, so, uh, so let's jump ahead a little bit to, um, to your college days. Um, you know, and, uh, I'm sure we can do a whole podcast just on your playing days, but we're going to focus mostly on, on coaching, but, uh, tell us how you ended up at Brown. Uh, well, I, I went to Decatur high school and I was part of a, a great class in 1987 and my older brother, Tommy, who I've referenced was four grades ahead of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a class in 1983 and in 1982 they won this first ever Connecticut state championship for new Canaan before that Wilton high school won them all. Hmm. And then my brother lost in double overtime. And, you know, during that, those two years of 82 and 83, new Canaan started to have some players that were recruited from high school to some really high profile college programs. Right. And so from that, and the success of our class, we had, you know, I, I want to say eight sophomores that were starting on the 1985 state championship team in Connecticut. And we beat what was, you know, said to be at the time, the best team in Connecticut history, which was the Wilton 85 team. Hmm. And so we, we got some interest from college coaches. Cause back then, Joe, Connecticut, if you were a high school American in Connecticut, it didn't mean much because it was hmm. Connecticut, you know, if right. it wasn't Long Island and it wasn't upstate New York and it wasn't Maryland, then it wasn't anything. Right, right. And so we were really sort of fighting for credibility at the time, but, you know, because of the success that the teams, you know, four or five years ahead of us had mm-hmm. the college coaches knew about us and they came and they recruited us. And, right. you know, for me, I looked at, it came down to Virginia and Duke and, uh, and Brown. And those were the three schools that I was most interested in. Right. And, I got interest. I got recruited from Penn and, and Harvard and Cornell and Rutgers, mm-hmm. but, but it really came down to Duke of Virginia and Brown. And right. while I loved each of the three places for different reasons, you know, for me, the reason that I chose Brown was really three reasons. One, my brother Tommy went to Brown, mm-hmm. so I was familiar with it. Number right. two, um, I, I, I liked Dom Starzy a lot who recruited me, mm-hmm. uh, but I also liked the coaches at the other schools as well. But in the end, I felt like the opportunity to help a program that was a non-scholarship program right. win a national championship, whether that was just naive or false confidence or whatever, mm-hmm. was really appealing to me. You know, I, right. was, I wasn't the best student. I tested mm-hmm. well. I didn't do great in terms of my report cards, right. but I did well enough so that I had, you know, the opportunity to, to go to an Ivy League school. And I figured mm-hmm. I, I have an opportunity to go to an Ivy League school. I never would get into the school without the support of lacrosse coach and admissions. Mm-hmm. While they've won some Ivy League titles, they've never won a national championship. And I feel like, you know, this is a great opportunity to cement my legacy as a player. Right. And so in the end, I, I turned down um, some scholarship money at Duke and Virginia to go to Brown. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so for you, it was, I mean, you had your brother there, but it also sounds like you were looking forward to the challenge a little bit. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's no question that was the draw and, and let's not, you know, forget that Brown had some 
some great teams during that time and some great players at the school. So it wasn't like I was looking at the program thinking, all right, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to carry this program to the national championship. I I didn't think that. I knew that there was Jay McMahon and Mickey, or I'm sorry, Jay McMahon and, and uh, you know, Mike Marinelli and Rich Mm -hmm. Toohey and Tom Dwyer. And, and, uh, you know, preceding that, my my brother's class, there were some some awesome players, Billy McComas, my brother. Uh, I I knew that there were Jamie Monroe, uh, mm-hmm. Bernie Bernard, there were so many great players up there that I really felt like Brown was on the verge of turning the corner and becoming a, you know, a, a, a top five team. Right. And so there, there was a lot of talent already there. And through the recruiting process, I realized that there were a lot of other good players that were looking at the school, Darren Lowe and Sam Jackson and Jimmy Scrub and, mm-hmm. you know, Carter Trudell and some of these other guys that I honestly felt like we had, we had the ability to do it and we, we didn't right. win the national championship, but we did get ranked as high as number three, my sophomore year. And, mm. and we went into the tournament at number two, my junior year, we were undefeated. Right. Uh, but ultimately we ran into a hot goalie and, and Rob Cavavit or uh, Steve Cavavit at, at Maryland who set the tournament record with 32 saves wow. and knocked us out in the quarters in, in 91. As you could tell, Joe, I moved on from that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that, was my, that was my next question was, uh, do you still think yeah. about this every day? No. <laughs> it's frustrating. Um, you know, right. I, the thing is, is Dennis Goldstein, who mm-hmm. you probably know that name, played at Carolina. You know that yeah. year they were undefeated and they won the national championship. And mm-hmm. he's a real good buddy of mine, Graham Harden, who now is battling ALS mm-hmm. um, and is from New Canaan, Connecticut. Here is also a very good friend of mine. Was on that Carolina team. Brian Kelly, the coach at Calvert Hall. Graham Bundy, who's you know uh, the guy who played at Kent. So I, mm-hmm. I knew a lot of the guys on that Carolina team. Right. And so for us to get knocked out in the quarters and not get a chance to play those guys in the finals was, uh, was tough to manage. It was tough. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, so, so getting back to the, the beginning of Brown, um, I'm always curious when you got there, did you feel like Brown was, was a fit for you or were there any transition issues from high school to college? Uh, there was definitely transition issues. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I grew up in, in a, a conservative household in a conservative mm-hmm. town and and, um, you know, to go to a hyper liberal environment like Brown <laughs> right. socially was like driving down the highway at 75 and jamming it in reverse to, to quote my friend, Jamie smiles. <laughs> um, he actually said that about parenting, but I'm saying that about my transition from New Canaan high school to Brown <laughs> university. Right. Um, you know, I love the lacrosse aspect of it. I loved playing for Dom and Pete Lasagna and Paul Hooper. Mm-hmm. I loved my teammates. I loved the fact that the program was, was on the way up in a big way mm-hmm. and was excited about what we could do on that front. I, I felt like I was getting away with, you know, bank robbery, being able to go to school there and, right. and you know, be in a position to graduate from an Ivy League school. I didn't, I didn't adequately appreciate it when I was actually in school there, right. but it wasn't lost on me that I was going to an Ivy league school with the academic profile that you know I created for myself in high school. (laughs) Um, you know, but, but the social environment was definitely, um, it was a transition, not that it wasn't fun. I I had fun. I mean, I had a great group of friends, but it was like sort of the same 200 athletes in the school at every single party, you know, the rest of the, the student body was not dying to catch up with Andy Towers. <laughs> right, right. So, so when you're when you're thinking back to that that time period, I mean, what did you do to help with the transition? 
You know, I, I think over time you sort of realize what the expectations are from everybody in your community, whether that's the athletic department, the coaches, the players, whether that's, you know, the academic side, whether that's, you know, the social side, whether that's just sort of everybody that's, that's walking around in Providence. It was, it was a bunch of, you know, different groups all overlapped geographically. Mm -hmm. And I, I sort of came to an understanding through, you know, trial and error more so than anything else of, right. of what I could and couldn't do, what I should and shouldn't say and, mm -hmm. um, you know, how I should and shouldn't act. And, you know, I, I was the type of guy that had to lick a boiling hot skillet three times before I realized it was burning my tongue on the second and third time. <laughs> right. And so, I, you know, I, 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 I had my failures, but um, I was very, very fortunate to have a lot of support and yeah. was able to eventually graduate from Brown. Gotcha. So, so when you're talking to incoming freshmen or, you know, say juniors or seniors in high school, um, how do you talk to them? What do you recommend or how do you recommend they think through the decision, their decision to go to school? What, what, uh, what sort of factors do you, do you, uh, have them consider? That's a great question. I, I, I say first and foremost, you got to understand the magnitude of the decision that you're making here. Mm -hmm. And while it may feel, if you're anything like I was when I was a you know, junior and senior in high school and I was looking at colleges, while you may feel that the lacrosse piece or the athletic piece um, or the positive side interest piece, in that case, it could just as equally apply to somebody you know, that's in music or art or, or acting or whatever. Right. Um, you know, you want to understand what it's a prelude to. For me, and not everybody agrees with my viewpoint, but for me, um, you know, what I'm telling my guys on my high school team that I coach is, is you want to make sure that you're number one, first and foremost, waking up and you're happy every single day. That's right. the number one thing. Mm -hmm. um, so you want to make sure you're doing your due diligence on these opportunities responsibly and thoroughly. Mm -hmm. uh, number two, you want to make sure that you are able to thrive in that academic environment and thrive mm -hmm. is not only survive, but it's also, you know, add to the academic side of campus. You know, that's, mm -hmm. that's going to be critical, um, you know, for your happiness as well. And, and, you know, ultimately becomes a foundation for your argument on why future companies should hire you over somebody else all over the other hyper-qualified people that are also looking for first-choice internships and first-choice jobs when they graduate from school, ultimately. Right. Um, and then a distant third, uh, the athletic piece, the lacrosse piece. And, mm -hmm. and the reason I say it's a distant third is that, you know, at this point, these guys aren't signing seven-figure deals to go play in the PLL, right? right? And right. until that opportunity arises, and I hope it arises tomorrow, right. but until it's <laughs> actually here, right. you know, that sort of seven-figure lucrative contract that they would sign, up, sign to play pro lacrosse is, you know, that job at Goldman Sachs or, right. you know, going to med school or, uh, you know, being a teacher. It, it, it's ultimately the first choice job in whatever field you ultimately decide you want to get into mm -hmm. whenever you ultimately decide that. And, right. and, you know, I didn't have my criteria prioritized that way when I was – going through the recruiting process and trying to select a school. I was smart enough to recognize that I wanted to go to the best academic school that I could, but I also had insight from my, you know, my parents that allowed me to make the decision as long as I made the right decision. Right. Um, right. And so I, I was fortunate that way. Mm -hmm. But now after having coached college across for 
you know, roughly 20 years and, you know, have, have lived through the mistakes that I made when I was in high school and, and, you know, when I was in college, not adequately appreciating the opportunity that I had from an academic standpoint at Brown. And, um, you know, I had success as a lacrosse player, but, you know, was, was, it's, it's not lost on me that I had some great opportunities that I, that I didn't appreciate and, and, and probably didn't turn into greater opportunities down the road for myself. And while right, I'm, right. I'm very, very happy with where I am right now, you know, there, there certainly were times, you know, in the last 25 years from when you get married to when you have kids, you know, and you want to make sure that you're able to provide the highest quality of life for your family. You know, you right. mentioned that you just got engaged, which big congratulations to you, um, you. from the listeners and everybody else. But, yeah. you know, you, you think you're focused on things until you realize that others are depending on you to make sure you get it done for them. Right. And it starts with your wife and, and then it's your, and then it's your kids. And, you know, oddly enough, as you get older, ultimately it becomes your parents, Right. Um, and that's kind of a stage where I'm now at 51 with my mom who's fighting dementia and my, my dad is, um, you know, he's struggling he's doing all right, right, but he's, you know, he's, he's, he's slowing down for sure. Yeah. And, and you start to realize that, um, you know, what you do every single day affects the people that you love the most in the world. And, right. um, you know, it's humbling and it's inspiring at the same time. Right, right. So, uh, you know, this is almost an unfair question to a to to ask, but I mean, y you brought it up, and I, I do want to get your take on it. I mean, I'm sure everybody that thinks back to their college career has some regrets or some things that they wish that they would yep. have known, uh, sure. you know, at the time. How do you, you know, when you're talking to parents, um, you know, or or maybe even other coaches, how do you recommend that they that they talk to kids? to help them appreciate, help the kids appreciate the opportunity that they have. Cause, cause you know, when I was, when I was at UVA, I think back on it literally every day about, you know, I, I didn't do terrible at school. I definitely didn't do as well as I could have done. And I wish that I would have taken advantage of that more. Um, I just didn't appreciate it. And, and how do you talk to those coaches and parents to, to make sure that these kids do appreciate that opportunity? I, t I, I tell them my story, Joe, my story is, mm -hmm. is a simple one, right? I got right. recruited by the best lacrosse schools in the country, like yourself coming out of high school. And, and I was a, I was a very good high school lacrosse player and I was, uh, I tested well, but I didn't do great in the classroom. And I went to Brown and I was smart enough to choose Brown with the support and the insight from my family. Mm -hmm. Um, but I wasn't smart enough to value the opportunity there academically didn't go to class right. and was able to survive academically through three years of Brown going to summer school every single summer right. and, you know, had professors that were unbelievably supportive of a student that was unbelievably selfish and clueless, right. which was me. And my junior year, we finished the country two in the country right. and we got Darren Lowe coming back. We got, we got, you know, uh, a Pat Flynn come. We got, a, we got an unbelievable team coming back. We lost a great group ahead of us and Jay McMahon and those guys that many of those guys were three and four year starters, but we had a class there that was loaded um, yeah. and some guys behind us that were phenomenal players. We had a legitimate chance to win the national championship that year in 92. Right. And 
I failed out of school. So mm. I didn't get the opportunity to play with my friends that I came in as a freshman with right. my senior year. And they went to their credit, they got it together and, and they went on and they moved on and they, you know, they lost in the corners to North Carolina mm-hmm. the following year. Um, but I didn't get to play on that team. And I, I honestly feel like if I had gotten to play on that team, that I, I would have had a, you know, we would have had a shot to win the national championship and I would have right. had a chance to, you know, to, to go on and, and make the U S world team and, and to do some things that I wanted to do as a player that, um, you know, I, I, I didn't get to do the way that I wanted to do them. And I, right. I tell the story and I, and I say, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to get caught up in, you know, all the, all the, you know, hoopla around it all. But at the end of the day, you know, you're responsible for what you do, the right. decisions you make on the weekends, whether you go to class or not, you know, whether, you know, you're, you're giving your teammates the best effort on the field. And, and the lacrosse piece was easy for me, right. but I had to learn my lesson the hard way right. Um, right. as a student. And, uh, and I certainly did with that said, it is a perpetual data point for me to look back on. And I, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I view it as a success story. That's how I view it. But mm-hmm. it took me a while to get out from underneath the stigma that I was, you know, a dumb athlete that didn't care about anything. And, and, and frankly, that was a, a fair, uh, you know, a fair title to put on me for a long right. time. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I mean, it's, it's a weird thing to think about, or it's a weird thing to say, you know, I, I don't have a kid yet, hopefully sometime soon, but I mean, I, I think about, I think about how to, solve that problem every day, how, how to, how to get it across to him or her, you know, to appreciate the sort of opportunities that are going to be ahead of, ahead of them precisely because I feel like your story and my story were, were similar in some regards, um, where we just didn't, you know, we we're looking back and saying like, ah, unbelievable opportunity that we just didn't take full advantage of. Um, yep. yeah. And I mean, I still, I still think about it every day. Um, but, uh, let's get to the start of your coaching career. Um, so what, what sure. made you want to start coaching? You know, I, I worked lacrosse camps in the summers mm-hmm. um, when I was in high school and when I was in college. And nothing w- was more fulfilling than walking off the field, whether right. it was camp or practice or whatever it may be, and feeling like you made a genuine difference in the, you know, in the minds of the players that you worked with, that they were a little bit better than they were before, you know, your two hours together, that they liked the sport a little bit more. They had a better understanding. I just, I loved the way that it made me feel. Mm-hmm. And after graduating from Brown, um, because I was fortunate after I failed, failed out for a year, I did get back in and I, I valued it much more after, mm-hmm. you know, that humbling experience. And I, right. I did graduate from Brown. Uh, you know, I stayed on and I, I coached in 1994 with Pete Lasagna and Joe Bresci and Sam Jackson. And we went to the final four hmm. and that experience combined with um, just the day to day feeling of walking off the field, feeling like you're helping guys become better players and helping them, you know, accomplish what, what they are dying to accomplish. Right. To me, it made me just fall in love with, with coaching in general. And so that's right. how I, that's how I got into it. I, I right. never really had a desire to, get into finance and get into, mm-hmm. you know, I just, I, I was never the guy that was looking to get an internship in New York city as an undergrad and, and right, trying right. to, you know, get out in front of it with these interviews. I just, that never, ever interest me. I never, it was never something that I ever 
was going to do. So once you started doing this, was this the, did you see it as a career right away? You know what? Um, I didn't right away. I, mm-hmm. I, I coached at Brown for a year mm-hmm. and then I got out of coaching. I moved back to New Canaan where I grew up, where I currently live now. My parents yeah. at the time were living over in, in Belgium. And so I, oh, wow. I lived in my parents' house and, and, and played pro indoor lacrosse for the New York Saints and managed my right. brother's bar in New York City and coached at Hackley School in Terrytown, New York. And, um, you know, so I continued to coach, but I was playing a little pro indoor and, and, and you know, it was in New York City socially, but also working there trying to make some money. And, right. and I did that for about a year. And then the opportunity came about to get back into coaching specifically at Brown. And so I went back to Brown in 1996 right. and we coached for a year. I coached for a year there and it was, it was coaching was great, but the team didn't do as well. And at that point I was about 25 years old or 26 years old. And I kind of felt like, you know, what am I, what am I doing here? You know, I, yeah. I, I need some money and, and, <laughs> you know, and so right. my brother at the time was working for Xerox and he got me an interview at Xerox and I ended up applying and getting a job. And, um, I did that for about a year and realized that, you know, my heart was in coaching more than it was trying to push copiers on people in New York city in a wool suit in (laughs) August. Right. You know, I'd walk into their office really sweaty because it was so hot and they'd basically be like, get out of here. And I just, (laughs) eventually I'm like, what am I doing? This is the worst. And so I got back into coaching. I got an opportunity when Jamie Monroe left, he was coaching at Yale. He was a good buddy of mine. I was coaching at Yale. He went and got the head coaching job at, at Denver at the time. Hmm. Um, you know, I had an opportunity to get back into it, coaching at Yale with Mike Waldvogel and Daryl Delia, and I went and I did that. And, and gotcha. since then, uh, you know, I was back in the sport for a long time after that. Gotcha. Yeah, so, so talk a little bit about how, how that opportunity at Yale came about in 1999, correct? Yeah, exactly. So uh, – Jamie Monroe, who was a senior when I was a freshman at Brown, real good friends with me and my brother, mm-hmm. um, you know, he was the offensive coordinator at Yale and said great things about Mike Walvo, legendary Hall of Fame coach up there, who's actually a Levittown guy too. Hmm. Um, and so he, uh, he ended up, Jamie ended up getting the job up there and there was an opportunity to get out of selling copiers in New York and get <laughs> right. into, back into college coaching. Uh-huh. And I thought, this is great. So I was living in New York with my wife at the time. It was my girlfriend. Yeah. And she basically was like, you know, what are you doing? Are you, is this what you want to do in life or right. not? You know, are you doing this so you can, you know, hang out with your friends and, and screw around? Are you doing this because you want this to be your profession? And it really hit home when she said, I still remember where we were right by Grand Central on, in mm. between 41st and 42nd Street when she said it to me. Yeah. And I, it, it hit home and I thought about it and I said, you know, what? I, I think this is what I really want to do. And, and so I, I did that for, for three years. I basically got on the 107 train from New York, got off in New Haven at like four, uh, 247 and double picked me up and, and we'd go to practice. And then right after right. practice, he'd run me back to the train station and they did it every day. And, <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it just really enhanced my love of coaching. And yeah. after three years at Yale, um, you know, as a second assistant making $2,000 a spring, essentially right. what I made, <laughs> right. um, you know, but it was worth it. Yeah. Uh, I, I got an opportunity to be, a to be the head assistant at Fairfield for Ted Spencer and I took it. 
Right, right. So, so for that that first coaching opportunity, especially since it's at a different school, you know, you went from coaching at your alma mater to another school in the Ivy League. Can you talk about what were some of the biggest lessons you learned or the, or the biggest surprises um, at Yale for those first couple of years? You know, the kids at both places were really smart, obviously. Otherwise, they wouldn't get into the school. But I felt like the Yale guys were a little more uh, – a little more academic as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it felt like every single kid at Yale was, you know, uh, just really into their academics more than anything else. That's right. the way it felt, mm-hmm. right? But I will say this is, it's jaded a little bit because when I coached at Brown, you know, I played with some of the guys that I coached mm-hmm. and I knew them socially. You know, the Yale guys, I never hung out with the Yale guys. I was never, you know, at their parties. I was never, you know, I I, I just had them at practice and that was it. And so I didn't have, you know, the full story from them. But I just remember feeling like the academics, the the guys at Yale were a little more uh, in a little more in their academics as a group, player one Mm -hmm. through 40 than the the guys at Brown were. Um, And I remember feeling like I could never have gone to Yale. Like I could barely go to Brown and I felt like, <laughs> right, right. you know, I could have never gone to Yale, but I loved the guys and I loved the parents and I, you know, the schools obviously speaks for itself and I love coaching with Mike Walvogel and double D. Right. I just remember feeling like if I, if I had gone to Yale, I would, I would have stuck out even more than I, than I did at Brown <laughs> for somebody that, you know, right. didn't prioritize academics first right. and foremost. Did, did you feel like it was easier to coach at Yale because you didn't have the the social connection to the players on the team like you did at Brown? In some ways I did. In some ways I didn't. I felt like the players at Brown were better than the players at Yale um, and that the team was better at Brown. And so I felt like I had to, and I knew the players at Brown as players better than I did at Yale. I walked into Yale. I didn't know who anybody was. Yeah. Um, you know, at the time. And so the Brown guys I knew, so I could, I already had conviction on, you know, who should be doing what. And, and I had a great relationship with Pete Lasagna and Joe Bresci who coached right. me. And, and so I, I feel like it was, it was, I felt like we were already thinking the same way when I was at Brown right. at Yale. Uh, you know, I didn't have preconceived notions. I felt like I had a better idea from a, a bigger standpoint of how to coach, I knew what I wanted to do from a six on six standpoint. I got to go to Yale and I got to run the whole offense. Right. You know, when I was at Brown, I didn't really run the offense. I, I was, I, I coached, you know, individuals and, you know, sort of player development and, you know, help individual players become better players. Mm-hmm. But we weren't running my schemes at Brown, right. you know, we were running Pete schemes right, and, right. uh, you know, and, but at Yale, we were running my schemes. It was different. Mm-hmm. So the, the, I had the whole offensive end of the field. I had unsettled. I had, I had extra man. And, you know, as long as I could verbally defend what I was doing to coach Waldvogel, he let me do what I wanted to do. So gotcha. it really accelerated my development as a coach up there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the other great thing about coach Waldvogel is he, he made you verbally defend everything that came out of your mouth. And so mm-hmm. if you, if you wanted your guys to do, you know, cut through, he'd be, he'd say, look at you and be like, do you want a back cut or ball cut? And I'd be like, huh? 
And right, I, I didn't right. even think about it like that. And then I started to understand, all right, well, in this situation, we're going to back cut. And if they start to step off too much, we'll fake our back cut, jump cut, see if we can get something off ball here as we cut through. And, you know, so like he, he really accelerated my development by giving me the ability to coach everything and not micromanaging me, but right. also forcing me to be able to verbally defend everything that I did. And if I could do it, then no problem, go for it. If I couldn't, right. then, right. then I needed to come up with another plan. And, and ultimately, it, it really helped me a ton as a coach in a number of ways. Right. Yeah. Can you can you talk about that a little bit more? Why was learning how to verbally defend what you wanted to do so important? As you know, personally for me, that's actually something that I realized. Um, you know, in in business, if if you can learn to verbally defend or give the reason why behind your doing things, um, you know, you're going to be better off. Can you talk about yeah, why I, you felt it was well, just, more beneficial? Sure. So mm-hmm. you, you think about yourself as a player, Joe, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if, if, if you have a question on why you're doing things as a player mm-hmm. and you ask the coach, you know, why are you telling me to jump? And he says to you, don't worry about it, Joe. Just you answer, you're asking your question, how high you're going to say meathead. You're going to write him off and be like, this guy's right. a fool. Right. Right. And you know, the good thing about coaching, you know, kids that are dying to get better or, or, or smart people, um, you know, and, and people that ask questions mm-hmm. is that if you can verbally defend why you're asking them to do what you're asking them to do, mm-hmm. what you'll find is not only will they do what you're asking them to do, or at least try to, they'll also police it amongst their teammates. Mm-hmm. And right. if it makes sense to them, but if your answer is do it, cause I say do it, right. then they're all going to go meathead. You're done. Right. right. Eventually you're done. And you may, and, and you know, I mean, you may still be on the staff, but they're not listening to you. Right. And, uh, you know, so it, it, I saw the value in being able to verbally defend right. everything that I said. And I felt that it really accelerated team unity or offensive unity when I was able to provide a reasoning for it proactively, as opposed to waiting for a question. And, and right. I felt like that enhanced buy-in and in the end allowed us to put, uh, you know, our best product on the field. Gotcha. Uh, in most instances. Yep. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. The, the the key word that I was thinking about that, which you just said is buy-in. If you, if you can explain the why behind what you're doing, it's easier to get buy-in from your team. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And, and, and that buy-in without buy-in, you have nothing. Right. You know, it's right. not what you know. It's what, it's what you can get them to do together. Right. That's going to give you a chance to win and give you a chance to be better as a group than they are as individuals. Right. And, um, Makes sense. Yeah, I, I didn't adequately appreciate that until until I was sort of forced to appreciate it. Makes sense. Um, so let's talk about um, how the opportunity at, at Dartmouth became available. You know, I know I'm skipping ahead a little sure. bit. You, you had you had a, yeah, a stint right. at Fairfield as well, but um, yeah. you were an assistant coach at Dartmouth um, before you were the head coach. Talk about how the assistant yeah. position became available first. So I, you know, after coaching three years at Yale, I coached two years at Fairfield. And we had a great team my first year and we won the GWL championship. We ended up beating Notre Dame who had gone to the final four the year before. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second year I was at Fairfield, I thought we were going to have a great team. We should have. One of our key players got hurt. Tom Warney here was a stud. Um, and we just, we kind of underachieved that year. And right. so I was, it was, it wasn't a lot of fun. And, um, then what happened was the Hartford head coaching position opened up and 
I ended up applying for that job and I ended up getting the job at the University of Hartford. And, and I was psyched. It was, you know, my own head coaching job in Division One lacrosse. And, right. um, you know, Jack McGetrick, who was a Hall of Fame coach, who's, who's passed away now, but was a, a legendary coach and, a, and an even better guy. Um, you know, when, when he stepped down, I ended up getting that opportunity. But the problem, as we've talked about before, is that I was living in Darien, Connecticut, and I wasn't making hardly any money to coach there. And right. it was an 80-mile commute both ways. I had a young daughter, had a mm. you know a new puppy, and I wasn't making any money. And I was, my my house was but I had too much too many expenses for not making enough money. Right. And right. So what happened was, after my first year at Hartford, we had we had a, a terrible season, mm. um, record-wise. Team GPA was high, and we you know, we tried to, I, I did the best I could. Right. And the kids were great kids and, you know, we had, we had fun, but, but our team didn't do well right. and it wasn't fun. You know, it, it yeah. just in terms of like losing all those games really was frustrating. And so um, I was going to get out of college coaching, but hmm. then Bill Wilson, who was the head coach at, at Dartmouth at the time called me up and asked if I had interest in, you know, the head assistant job up at Dartmouth. And so it was an opportunity essentially to, to double my income, Hmm. move to an area that would, you know, cut our expenses down significantly. Right. And which, which again was, was enticing. And we had a, a young daughter and, um, you know, we figured why not let's, let's go for it. And it was right. an opportunity to get back into the Ivy league where I played and where I had coached at Brown and at Yale. And I felt like I could recruit from my heart up there, there were some things that made Dartmouth very unique that I could sell in the recruiting process as the head assistant. And right. uh, I got along with Billy Wilson and Bartolo Governanti, who was the other coach there at the time. And, yeah. and I, and I went for it and it was uh, it was, it was a great decision for me at the time. Gotcha. So, sorry. Who was the head coach at the time? The head coach was Bill Wilson at gotcha. the time. And now he's the head coach of the Air Force. Gotcha. Um, so how did coach Wilson know to reach out to you? How, how did that, how did that come about? You know, I, I, I don't know for sure. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I certainly am, am known more for my passion than I am my self-discipline <laughs> and willpower. Right. Uh, and I, I want to say that, you know, I know we played against each other when he was at Loyola. He was a year or two behind me. So we played against each other when he was a, a long stick midi at Loyola, right. um, preceding Matty Dwan. And, and I was a midi at Brown. We played Loyola every single year. So I played against him. Um, you know, I want to say that I – I think he may have been coaching at Princeton when I was coaching at, at Brown. And so, um, and then he might've been coaching at Cornell when I was coaching at Yale. And so hmm. I think we not only played against each other, but we coached against each other, but I'm not, I'm not exactly sure, gotcha. um, you know, how, how he, how he got my name, but. Gotcha. But, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, you know, you're, you're the assistant. If I did my research right, it looks like you're the assistant from 2005 to 2009, um, yep. And then you move up to be the head in 2009. Um, can right. you talk about that transition from assistant coach to, to head coach? What were some of the biggest, um, I guess, surprises or lessons that you learned during that transition? Sure. I, I, I think the greatest, I think it's, it's absolutely the biggest jump. Um, right. You know, when, when, when you're coaching particularly college across, like as an assistant you got an end of the field, right? I was the offensive coordinator and I was, uh, I was recruiting coordinator, but at the end of the day, you know, the head coach is is the person that really gets the credit or, or, or gets the blame and is really responsible for everything that goes in 
uh, goes on in the program. And, uh, you know, when I became the head coach at Dartmouth, I was so psyched because I was going to be able to, number one, uh, hire assistants. I was going to be able to make all the decisions that I wanted to make. What I didn't have an adequate understanding of is, is how little the coaching on the field actually is when you're the head coach as you try to manage the other, the needs of the other constituents of the program, whether that's the athletic director, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the athletic department and, and, you know, checking all the boxes that they need checked, whether it's right. managing, you know, the relationship with the alumni and, and trying to manage interests of alums that want to see the program succeed mm-hmm. for the right reasons. And you've got other alums that, you know, want you to take their kid, even though, both of you know he's not good enough to play. Right. Um, right. You know, it's mm. managing parents of kids that don't play. Mm-hmm. It's managing kids that, um, you know, maybe were, were big recruits that didn't pan out for you and then their parents. And, mm. and, and, and slowly, I felt like the reason that I got into coaching college lacrosse, which was going to practice and, 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 and helping kids get better, which is what I loved. Mm-hmm. It felt like that was just such a small part of the job mm. as a head coach. And as an assistant coach, it's still a huge part of the job, and it's, it's, it's at the forefront of what you do. But as soon as right. you become the head coach, you know, you sort of, you sort of lose that because you have all these other responsibilities that right. you've got to manage and you've got to be on top of. And, Right. And and if you aren't, you know, you're 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 killing yourself. And so right. Right. it just it just was a lot less fun as a head coach in college. Mm-hmm. Um and it and ultimately uh eroded my interest of of staying in college coaching, to be honest with you. Gotcha, gotcha. So yeah, I I guess my, my well a couple questions, but I, I guess my overall question there is how do you learn to deal with that? Because um, I'm sure that is a that is a rough transition, especially if what you love as a coach is the actual coaching part. Um, and if yeah. that's becoming such a small part of it, how how did you learn to deal with that? Well, you know, I, I think that it's crazy about the amount of times that I would go home to my wife and I would say, you know, it's almost like I care too much, hmm. and I and I feel like my my. I would be happier as a person if I cared a little less about the program. Like that's the way I, I mean, the amount of times that I said that was staggering and I'd be like, Mm. it sounds crazy, but like, I feel like I'm, I I care too much about it. And ultimately, you know, it's a partnership. It's a partnership with the athletic director. Mm. It's a partnership with the athletic department. It's a partnership Mm. with the other coaches. It's a partnership with admissions. It's a partnership with the financial aid office. It's a partnership with your players. It's a partnership with your staff. It's a partnership with everybody. And, and I had, you know, some great staff and I had some great players and I had some great alumni and I had some, some great parents and I, and I had a great admissions, you know, uh, liaison and, you know, but, but there were a couple, a couple, you know, relationships that, you know, weren't that great. And, and I, and, and, you know, the type of guy I am is I'm going to be dead honest with you and, and I'm going to try to be tactful, but I'm going to be proactive and I'm going to, and I'm, and I'm going to be straight. 
and, right. and a lot of the people loved that. Um, but there were uh, some people that, you know, were either offended or didn't like how direct I was in certain things or, right. you know, whatever it may be. And at the end of the day, you know, they wanted me to do some things uh, that I, that I just was not going to do. You know, right. they wanted, they wanted me, they wanted me to make decisions about my staff when my staff was the best that I could hire up there, hmm. um, you know, right. and, and some unbelievably talented coaches. Right. And they, you know, they didn't necessarily love, um, you know, some things and they wanted me to make decisions that there was no way I was going to make. And right. in the end, uh, you know, we decided to go our separate ways. If, if, if I had done what they had asked me to do, I could have kept my job. Hmm. Um, but to be honest with you, I had wanted to get out of college coaching for a few years, even before that. Right. And, you know, them sort of putting me in a corner and saying, if you don't do this, then, you know, then, right. you know, are you open? And I had a year left in my contract and, and right. you know, they said, we need to do a B and C. And I said, I'll do a, there's no way I'm doing B and C no hmm. way. Right, and right. I think they thought I was going to do it and I, and I wouldn't do it and I, and I'd never do it. Gotcha. Um, and as a result, I said, great, you can buy up my contract. I'm out. And that mm -hmm. was it. And so I was, I was pumped. They, listen, they treated me well. Right. Um, you know, we just didn't agree on how things needed to improve there. And, right. you know, I, I, I look at, I look at what's, what's happened for me in the last five years. And I thankful that, that situation happened because I'm happier right. than I've ever been. And, uh, and things are going great. And, you know, to be able to be in the PLL, to be able to coach my sons and my daughter's games over the you know seasons teams over the last few years, and to be able to coach the high school game, I'm, I'm right. in the game the way that I want to be in the game as much right. as I want to be in the game. And I'm able to, you know, provide a, a you know, uh, adequate lifestyle for my, my wife and kids. So it That's, couldn't have been yeah. better for me. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, those, those, those tough moments in life, they sometimes turn out to be blessing, blessings in disguise. Right. Yeah. There's no, no question about it. Right. Right. So, so real quick, let's, let's talk about you coming on board um, as the head coach in a brand new league. Um, sure. What has it been like so far? What have you learned? Uh, you know, number one, it is unbelievable, Joe. I mean, like <laughs> the, the whole experience from, the, you know, the quality on the field of the PLL, the right. commitment of the players, the quality of the, the quality of the people that the players are, the vision and the professionalism and the communication from, uh, you know, the executive committee from Mike Rabel to Paul Rabel to Josh Sims to, um, you know, Rob Sanzillo to Seth Tierney to, um, you know, Andrew Davis, all these guys. I mean, I, I never played in the NFL, but I have to imagine that this is what it feels like, the way right. we travel, the way mm -hmm. that um, the production from NBC, it, it, it just, it's, it's exceeded my expectations. I had high expectations on how I thought it could be, and right. it's ex exceeded them tenfold. I mean, it's just been mm -hmm. incredible, uh, you know, to be able to, coach with Matt Panetta who's a, a longtime friend of mine for 30 years who played on the under 19 1988 team uh right. and and Ryan Curtis who I played with on the Cannons who coached at Vermont yeah. is you know coach is a real good buddy of mine and you know to be able to coach those two guys with the roster that we have in a league that you know values the 
the experience of the players. It does everything, you know, first class and, um, you know, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's been right. so, it's been so humbling and I've never loved the sport more than I do today. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, watching from the sidelines. First of all, I feel like I was born five years too early. <laughs> like yeah. I, you like know, I, 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 I just missed out. Like that too. Yeah. It's so funny you say that because the only thing that would be better than coaching in this league would be playing in this league. <laughs> right. And, it, uh, and, and that it just isn't going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> right. It, it kills me. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so what, what so far, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not like coaching college lacrosse yet. I mean, you guys no. aren't together every day. Um, nope. So talk about what, what have been some of the biggest challenges and, and some of the biggest lessons you've learned, especially because the setup is a little different. Yeah, you know, I, I think, I don't know if there's necessarily challenges because mm-hmm. having played in the MLL, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I know what it's like to play, you know, in this type of environment. They're totally right. different experiences right. from the way the MLL was structured, or at least it's, it's totally different from what my experience in the MLL was as a player and what I'm looking at and what these guys are going through now. That's, that's totally different. But I think more so than anything else, I lean back on, you know, what it was like for me to play in the MLL and and in the NLL. Um, And I'm just mindful of, you know, how you want to communicate to these guys. These guys Hmm. are the best players in the world and they're men. Right. And some of these guys have families and some of these guys don't, but they're all men. And it's, it's 100% about lacrosse with mm-hmm. these guys you know i'm not managing the interests of these other constituents it's it's you know it's the staff the locker room the needs of the league right. and you know our job is is to try to win the pll championship that's our job within the framework right. of the rules and so it is 100 percent about lacrosse and so in order to do that I, i'm convinced that the team that's ultimately going to win the pll championship is going to be the one that uh you know is, is the most unselfish team that plays the hardest that executes mm-hmm the most consistently and is in the best shape. Um, You know, I think all six of these teams have enough talent to go out and win the PLL championship. There's not a doubt in my mind. You look at the amount of one goal games that this league has spit out this, this summer. And I I think they said there's whatever, 11 one goal games to this point. And, and, you know, there's very, very few blowouts. (laughs) Of course we got blown out uh, two weeks ago by the Chrome, (laughs) but um, you know, we had beaten them the year, the week before, and I, I think it was an aberration, but the reality is they, they deserve the credit. They played really hard and they played, they were desperate and, and, right. and they earned it. So there's no shame. In, there's no shame in losing to anybody, but there is shame associated with not playing your best. And, and right. we didn't feel like we played our best, but credit them. They deserved it. But right. at the end of the day, it's really, uh, you know, about trying to create some, some structure, some mm-hmm. loose structure that allows these guys to feel like they have scheme support, but not feel micromanaged in any way. Um, mm. You know, they're so good that I got to be honest at times I'm, I'm caught up watching them like a fan mm. to some right, degree. Right. So, you, you know, you, but, but again, you're, you're trying to give them some general scheme support that ideally right. puts the players in a position to play to their strengths um, and to feel 
that they're supported schematically but not micromanaged in any way. And that's that's what we try to do on both ends of the field. And right. and then um, you know, then stay out of the way, really is, is kind of what it is. <laughs> right, right. So real quick, can you walk us through what's what's the setup like for you guys? Uh, you know, if you're playing over like, you know, say it's a Friday or a Saturday game, um, sure. are you guys meeting the day before? Is it similar to the MLL like that? It is. Yeah. So it's tour based, as you know, it's tour based. So all right. six teams converge on one geographic on one geographic location. Right. Uh, you know, roughly ten weekends over the course of the summer, over the course of like thirteen weekends. So mm-hmm. take this uh, this weekend we have the All Star Game, but the following week we play in Denver. So we've got a Saturday night game in Denver on uh, on Saturday the twenty seventh. Right. Mm-hmm. So we all converge on to Denver on Friday, the day before, you know, the league wants us there by 5 PM right. and we have a team practice that night. And then, you know, we wake up and we, you know, we eat and we get ready to leave the hotel and, mm-hmm. you know, we go to the game the next day and play the game and then, you know, either get out of there or stay the night and then get out of there. Right. Um, but everybody converging on, one city is is really what it is and so if guys are playing sunday then they'll typically arrive on that saturday so you really you arrive right. one day before you have yep. a team practice and those practices are critical right. um you know and 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 you know these guys are are making sure that they're getting to practice you know it's 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 right. not like it was when i played for the boston cannons when it was you know, we'll, we'll see you at the game. And if you make practice, great. And, you know, and I get it. It, 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 <laughs> right. it, it is what it is. Um, but these guys are, are getting paid, you know, pretty good money relative to what they're doing. And they are, uh, while they're mindful that we're all on the same side, trying to win the PLL championship, right. you know, the elephant in the room is, is, is addressed. And that's look, you know, there are going to be guys that, that dress every game. There's going to be guys that dress, you know, sporadically. And there's going to be guys that don't dress very much. And there's going to be guys right. that don't dress at all. And I can, you know, assure everyone that as a staff, we don't care who plays. We want to win. We want to make decisions right. that ideally put us in a position to first and foremost win on game day. And then a close second to evaluate as many players as we can along the way. Mm-hmm. But ultimately we want to settle on who are the best 20 that give us the best chance to win the right. PL championship. That's the goal. Right. Um, right. And, and so, you know, in a perfect world, we finish the regular season in first or second place, mm-hmm. um, you know, worst case third and fourth and, you know, teams one through four can win the PLL championship, but the way that they've structured the playoff format, everybody's got something to play for, whether it's the PLL championship or whether it's the first pick in next year's draft. draft. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so how are you, uh, you know, you you mentioned, you know, you want to make sure that your team's unselfish. The ones that execute are going to win. But you mentioned that you uh, you also believe the team that's in the best shape is going to win. Um, you know, yeah. you guys aren't together every day. But you also mentioned, you know, you, you want to give, uh, you know, you don't want to micromanage your team too much. So how are you ensuring that your team is in the shape? that you believe it needs to be, especially when you guys aren't together every day? Well, I mean, that's a great question. The reality is that there's, there's trust and that these right. guys are playing. They're competing, not mm-hmm. only as a team, 
toward a general goal to win the PLL championship, but they're also competing for, you know, to be on the travel roster, to play on game day. Right. And these are guys that, you know, are, are dying to play at the highest level. So they're, you know, they're, it's, but it's on themselves. You know, I'm not, they're blowing the whistle saying, get on the online running sprints. It's not that type right. of environment at all. They've got to handle, you know, their strength conditioning component themselves. And if they aren't right. in shape and they're not playing well, then they're not going to dress. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's just as simple as that. It's, it's, it's how well are you playing right. and it's hot and, and it's, the game is fast and, you know, uh, there's a lot of good players and guys that are dying to take your spot. And, um, you know, so these guys are, are making sure that they're eliminating any reasons that are effort related right? that could prevent them from being in the lineup. And it's, right. uh, you know, the league is paying them pretty well, in my right. opinion. And, and, you know, you, you, you miss a game check. That's a big deal. And if you get a game check, that's your rent and food maybe for the month, which is, right. which is a lot for 24, right. 25, 20, right. And, and so the, the, the PLO has stepped up and they're taking great care of the, of the players. There's no question right. about it. And, and the players have responded. I mean, right. I don't, I don't, I don't look at one guy on a roster and say, ah, you know what? He's out of shape. Like that's right. not the problem, right? They're so right. hyper competitive. They want to win so bad. And they want to be in the lineup so badly that they're, they're checking those boxes for sure. Right. It, it, it does, you know, I mean, from the outside, it does seem like the attitude in general, you know, in the, in the PLL and in the MLL has, has changed a little bit where everybody views themselves as a professional lacrosse player. Um, for sure. You know, I mean, I, I, when I got drafted for the MLL, I mean, I was excited for it, but I definitely wasn't thinking about it until it was like, oh, Oh yeah, that's the MLL draft is coming up. I, I forgot that I get a chance to play professionally, um, right. and it doesn't right. seem to be that way anymore. Um, it seems like no, you know I, they're starting to think, yeah. "Hey, this is something that I can do um, as a career." That's, there's no question about it that they can, and that's what makes it so exciting. You right. know, certainly the 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 glitz of being on NBC, um, you know, for the PLL, and I know the MLL also, you know, between stadium and, and some games on ESPN and those stuff, they've, you know, certainly stepped it up. It sounds like, um, you know, but I can just speak to the, to the PLL and um, you know, what they've done to make it an unbelievable experience has certainly enhanced the interest of the best players playing their best so that they can, you know, be on the, on the field. But in addition right. to that, the compensation, um, you know, to offer these guys benefits, you know, we went to training camp for five days it was incredible. Not not yeah. only was it just playing, but they had these seminars on on health and and nutrition and um, right. you know everything. Social media. I mean, it was it was it it really was thorough. I mean, the 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 PLL, um, you know, which I'll only speak about because I don't I don't I'm not in the MLL. I just don't know the nuances of it anymore. But yeah. I can tell you that they are, you know, prioritizing the experience of the players and, and are responsible for the players developing, you know, as professional athletes. And, and right. that's not lost on these guys. You know, these guys, I, you know, all are saying the same things I'm saying, which is, right. Hey, I'm so pumped. It couldn't be more fun. I'm humbled to be part of it. And, and I hope I'm able to be part of it forever. You know, that's, right. that's, I, I haven't heard anybody say anything other than that. Not one guy. Right. Well, I mean, you know, just watching the game and, and seeing the social media and, and talking to some of the players as well and talking to you, it, it certainly comes across. It's it's an exciting time, um, you know, to be a lacrosse fan. Um, and like I said, it's uh, I was born five years too early. <laughs> I know. I hear you. I hear you. Uh, 
Um, the hope is that the hope is that you know it all kind of comes under one umbrella at some point. You know, right. however that however that happens, um, you know it it and, and I think it will at some point. Um, and, right. and I would but I would put the NLL in there as well. You know, I think mm-hmm. all things lacrosse, if we're able to to work it out uh, and all get aligned, I think that you know is in the best interest of the sport as a whole. For sure, for sure, yeah, and I'm sure over the years that'll that'll definitely happen. But um, you know, the PLL coming together is a uh, is definitely a big step forward. Um, so I, you know, just a few more questions. You know, I'm I'm already sure. keeping you longer than I said. Um, no worries. But, uh, we'll get you out of here in a little bit. But um, no you know, so for the for the young players that are listening, you know, when you think back um, to the best players that you've coached. What's, what would you say are, you know, one or two common attributes that you see or remember about those players? Uh, drive to be the best. You know, I, I remember doing a camp up in Maine, a top 75 camp, and Jesse Hubbard came to camp. I remember right. doing a camp, Ivy lacrosse camp, which Jamie Monroe ran, uh, and Josh Sims was a camper. And, you know, those guys, I just epitomized kids that just wanted to be the best player in like the history of the game is the way it seems. And that dynamic of just an undying, you know, drive to reach their potential as players, whether that's, you know, trying to acquire a complete skill set of stick work and stick handling, ground ball play and shooting and, you know, gaining a, complete understanding from an IQ standpoint of what you do, um, you know, with the ball and off the ball and settled and unsettled situations in offense or what you do covering the ball or playing off ball and settled and situa- settled and unsettled, settled and unsettled situations on defense. Right. Um, you know, an awareness of your intangibles, uh, you know, the importance of being hyper competitive, being a great teammate, physically durable and mentally tough and, 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 and not getting outworked. You know, all right. of the things that go into making up a player, you know, enhancing their athleticism, doing strength conditioning, living the right way. And, and all of these things now play such a huge role. But to me, right. the number one attribute is a kid that is simply not going to get outworked. To me, right. eventually, eventually you become the best. You know, right. that's right. That's my opinion. The, you know, the one thing that stuck out there, which, which I believe is so important, and you mentioned this when you mentioned Josh Sims, was these players, they believed that they could be the best player in the world, right? Totally. They, you know, they knew that, you know, maybe they, you know, they're, not everybody's going to be the best player, obviously, but they all believed that they could be. And that is, that makes such a big difference. It does. I mean, that's, that's one of the beauties of, of, of being a kid. Right. Right. You don't right. you don't have an adequate understanding of, you know, how tall of a task that statement actually is. You know, you think right. that you're you're capable of doing it because your parents tell you you can accomplish anything if you set your mind to it. Right. And mm-hmm. and you believe that. And and, right. and and you want kids believing that for as long as possible, even though sure. in some situations it might not be realistic. Right. You know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, my my kid shooting baskets when he was a, a little kid. And, and I remember playing basketball with him in the driveway and, you know, like he's a really good athlete. And 
you know, he'd miss shots and it was like the end of the world. I'd be like, what's the matter? He like, the expectation was that he should make every single shot. Right. <laughs> and I would come in and talk right. to my wife and I'd be like, this is like such a unbelievably unrealistic expectation for himself. But the last thing I'm going to do in the world is bust that expectation. Yeah. Like, take it away from him. You right. Know, you you right. want him thinking that for as long as possible. Yeah. And, that's uh, for sure. You know, that's, that, sure. uh, that that mentality is, I think, the foundation for uh, future greatness for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and then, so so one question um, for for younger coaches as well. Sure. Um, you know, as a head coach, what do you think is the most important quality for a head coach to possess? Um, understanding what the priorities are of the players and the coaches on your staff. I, I think that's the most important thing. Understand what their respective motivations are because that's where you also understand where your leverage is. You know, as a college coach coaching in the Ivy League, my leverage was really, um, you know, these guys weren't getting paid, right? They were already in right. school, so they didn't need my support and admissions. They weren't on scholarship. The Ivy League doesn't do that. The reality is they didn't need to play college across, right? right? They're doing it to enhance their quality of life. Mm -hmm. they, they didn't need it. As a high school player, you might need it. You might need scholarship money. You might need support from a specific coach in admissions to get you to school. But, but at, at Dartmouth, for example, um, you know, they were doing it simply to have it enhance their life. And so mm -hmm. the number one box that needed to be checked from my standpoint was, was make it fun, you know, make it, Right. Make it something that they're dying to be a part of. And if it's not fun, eventually they're just going to put the stick down. They don't need it. They'll do other things. Right. And so that's one piece as it relates to the players. You know, right. the staff, it's like, okay, you know, you've got guys on your staff that, um, you know, want to be in your shoes. They, they want a head coaching job and they don't make right. enough money and they work long hours. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you want to be mindful of that. You want to try to compensate them as much as you can to, you know, minimize the financial burden of guys that are coaching college across and making no money or not receiving right. benefits. You want to be mindful of the fact that even though they're, they're on your staff, that you have a responsibility to help them accomplish their respective goals of becoming a head coach. Mm -hmm. And while it might not help your program specifically to, you know, give a real positive endorsement for a assistant coach on your staff to get mm -hmm. another opportunity. You owe them that, you know, and, and, right. and my feeling is that if you've got players that feel like you're genuinely out for their best interests as people and, and, mm -hmm. you know, you're mindful of that, their health and their academics and their family situation and their job pursuits are a bigger priority to them than lacrosse. And it should be that way. I don't care where you're, where you're playing in college. It should be that way. Right. If the guys feel like you have their genuine best interests as people and as students, you know, as, as, as sons and brothers, you know, you're putting that ahead of their success as a lacrosse player and what helps you to me that would be all I need to give that respective coach my heart and soul and, and do everything I could to help the team right. be successful. If that I'm on sense. the staff of a, of a coach that, 
you know, is, is trying to compensate me and alleviate that stress in my life the best that he's the best that he can. And he's proactively doing everything he can to help me get, you know, the next opportunity, the next coaching, uh, you know, opportunity. And, and it doesn't necessarily help his program. I'm going to do everything I can for that guy. Right. And, you know, so that, I mean, that's, those are the things that, that I tried to do. And I'm sure in some cases I was better than I was in others, but the right. goal was to, the goal was to, to recognize um, that it's a relationship and it's not right. a dictatorship. And, and I think at the end of the day, um, you know, that's, what's going to get the most out of people and ultimately get the most out of the program. Absolutely. Makes sense. Makes sense. So, uh, so real quick, you know, besides the PLL, um, what else are you doing today to talk about, tell us about lacrosse draws. So, uh, yeah. So outside of the PLL, I also coach, uh, a high school team, uh, locally here. Um, and then my livelihood is, is my company called lacrosse draws. So basically what lacrosse draws is, is it's, uh, a, a, a player development program that I run and I've got, you know, it, it runs 365 days a year. Uh, I do, right. I do private sessions for small groups all year round. I do, uh, private groups and public groups, um, from the middle of September through the last week of February, I've got 28 groups of 20 kids in a group that I do 28 hours a week. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's three to nine on Monday, three to nine on Tuesday. And so the whole week goes like that. I do private sessions and private right. special groups on the weekends. Uh, and then I coach my high school season during the spring and in the summer, I run a three week girls program and I run two individual one week boys camps. Um, and I do that through the middle of July. And then I take August essentially off. And, um, what's great about it is I get to write my own schedule. So I coach my son's football team and, and, uh, you know, attend all my kids athletic contests and, um, I'm able That's to, awesome. To, to prioritize my family life over my, my work. And it all, all meshes really, really well. So That's uh, it's basically just a point. Yeah. It's player development program that I run, you know, year round. Gotcha. And can, uh, is there a website where people can find more information? There is it's, it's lacrossedraws.com is basically gotcha. what it is. So lacrosse right. draws like, yep. And that's it. And I will, uh, I'll put that in the blog post, uh, for the episode. Um, so people can check it out if they'd like. Um, but, uh, this has been a great conversation. Uh, you know, I appreciate you taking the time, but there's been one question that I've asked everybody who's come on the show. Um, what are three things that everyone should be doing every day to get better at whatever it is they do? It doesn't have to just be lacrosse. You know, I, I think first and foremost, being mindful of being a good teammate, whatever your, mm -hmm. you know, team you're on, whether that's your, uh, spouse, whether it's your kids, whether it's your, you know, your parents, your brothers, sisters, I, I think, uh, you know, that's critical. Um, I think get a workout in every day, making sure you get the sweat. So you're keeping your edge as much as possible. Right. Um, and then the last thing I would say is, uh, you know, make sure you don't lose sight of the importance of, um, of humor on a day-to-day -day basis. I think awesome. those things more so than anything else, uh, will keep you young, keep you happy. And, uh, and keep everybody that you care about happy. And I think that's the key to success in life. That's awesome. Um, well, Coach, listen, this has really been a great conversation. I can't thank you enough for taking the time. I really enjoyed it. 
Well, I appreciate it, Joe. It's a pleasure to connect. I was a fan of yours when you were down at Virginia. I was also a fan of yours when you were back up at Cuse. And, uh, and it's, it's good to connect and uh, appreciate you having me on for sure. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Game Changer Lacrosse Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Uvoli. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Uvoli. You can find more episodes of the Game Changer Lacrosse Podcast on this season at thisseason.gc.com. If you like the podcast, please take a second to give it a positive review on iTunes. This helps more people find the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at GC Sports. And if you're a coach, a parent, or you run a traveler club team, check out Game Changer Team Manager in the App Store. It's an essential, all-in-one scheduling and communication app for lacrosse coaches and parents. Game Changer Team Manager is free, it's easy to use, and it doesn't serve ads. Learn more at gc.com forward slash team manager. Until next time, keep working and keep getting better.